0: Good morning and welcome back to Office Hours, the William Mary Law School Podcast. Uh, I am Scott McMurtry. I'm Davis McKinney. And we are pleased to be joined today by Professor David Belsner and Professor Caleb Stone. You are a professor
1: technically, right? So I'm technically a clinical uh, legal fellow right now. I have been recently offered an appointment as a professor of practice starting next fiscal year and I plan to accept that. We're breaking news
0: on the podcast. Professor enough for your purposes, I suppose, Also, I could have
1: looked that up, but I didn't, so (laughs) we're learning on the fly. You know, learning on the fly, keeping editing and research to a minimum. Not only do I respect that, I envy it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, So the Veterans Benefits Clinic is uh, a
0: major, I think, institution here at the law school. A lot of students uh, either during the semester um, for credit do uh, work with the clinic and some students including myself way back when in 2017 end up working here during the summer. Ancient Um, history. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The clinic experience is definitely something that is again a major factor at the law school. It helps students get experiential learning. Uh, which is very important, and uh, the Veterans Benefits Clinic is renowned for the work it's done over the last couple decades to uh, help veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces um, recover some benefits that they, we believe, are entitled to. So, I am not the expert on that. That's why we have these guys here. So, um, if... Professor Belsner and Caleb, if you guys want to talk a little bit about how you ended up at the clinic, what your background is, and uh, kind of set the stage for our interview.
2: Well, sure. Um, I, this is Dave Belsner, I got here, I uh, came about a little over three years ago now uh, from private practice. I've been a lawyer in Richmond, Virginia for 30 years, uh, the last dozen years of which I spent doing veterans work, uh, representing veterans uh, individually through a private law firm, uh, doing benefits. So. When this position came up, and it was kind of a natural thing for me to uh, look at trying to do, I had been teaching at U of R Law School uh, various things, legal writing and contract drafting and such. So I've always been interested in teaching, and so it was a very attractive position for me because I was exactly the work I was doing. Um, so that's how I came to be here. Um, I, uh, unlike a lot of people in clinic, clinical teaching, um, I don't come to the field uh, sort of from initially from an orientation of helping underserved populations or public interest kind of work. I came out of a private law firm uh, where, of course, we had to, you know, make money. We had to pay the light bill. (laughs) Um, But um, certainly it's rewarding to be able to help people who need help uh, when we're able to do it. Uh, I have to say, uh, I confess my Greatest satisfaction comes more from trying to keep the government honest and uh, <laughs> complying with the system it's set up, which it often likes to ignore. Uh, so I really get sort of most of my satisfaction from uh, holding the government folks to their own rules.
1: Well, uh, first of all, uh, let me do the blue eating thing, and thank you both for having us. Uh, absolutely thrilled to be here, and I will apologize if I come out very loud in this podcast hopefully you're just compressing the absolute heck out of this because uh, i'm a naturally loud person a uh, a voice made for silent movies and a face made for radio so uh we're gonna get through it and, and see what happens i'm gonna try to move back from the mic so i don't cut through as much so I was a law student here, as you well know. I've jokingly said that I'm a seven L now. Uh, I'll be a rising eight L in a, just a couple of short months. Hope when, he's going to catch you all... on here. <laughs> it's it's like a particularly uh, malignant illness that you can't quite get rid of. When so... you get ten, you're like fourteen. <laughs> Perhaps never, but obviously <laughs> we just strive and strive and strive, pressing on towards the goal to win the prize. Right. So I graduated from this law school in 2015, and I did the Veterans Benefits Clinic as a 2L, both uh, my 2L semesters. It's not the only clinic I did here. I did both the Pele Special Education Clinic and the Elder Law Clinic as well, and those were both fantastic experiences. Um, Did several other things in the law school too. I was an SBA class rep. I was on board as a senior article editor. I was a student assembly representative as well and so I was fairly involved here. I got a chance to come back and sort of his pos- uh, position that wasn't originally I think going to be all that teaching oriented but I kind of wormed my way into it and now I'm in my sixth semester of teaching veterans benefits in the clinic. We supervise students on our cases so as you well know Scott having had you in a temporary sojourn on your long journey towards internet radio stardom <laughs> uh, we've had a, a lot of p- students come through and work on these cases and these cases take a very long time they are my cases that students work on for a semester or for however long that they're in the clinic they get a subset of my cases to work on and I've, I've been uh, I, so I've been here since January of 2016 and this is the middle of my sixth semester of teaching it's been great uh yeah actually we think that the first semester was offered to law students was spring 2009 so we're celebrating a pretty big anniversary this year Um, of course the clinic was named after lewis b puller jr the son of the greatest marine of all time chesty puller Uh, fairly uh, local family. I believe that they had been in West Point for quite a while in the surrounding areas. Um, He wrote a uh, 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 very, very acclaimed book called Fortunate Son about his experiences in the Vietnam War. He was a graduate of this law school the class of 1974 and then after he uh, tragically committed suicide based off of some of the, the tragic experience that he had, had experienced during Vietnam, uh, his classmates came together and uh, sort of gave a little bit of money and sort of donated in his honor to name this clinic. And so that's our namesake, that's who started it. It's probably all the history they need to know, probably, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, except that the, like most clinics, the whole point of the clinic is to, is to win-win. You're helping population that needs help and you're giving law students a chance to do practical legal work while they're still in law school. But, uh, there aren't all that many win-wins in the world, but law clinics are definitely one.
3: <laughs> that's a fairly rudimentary question, but just as a first-year student, kind of unfamiliar with clinics, what types of claims or services do you assist the veterans through?
2: Our clinic is uh, focused really on one type of benefit, and that's disability benefits. Uh, that is the most frequently sought benefit by veterans. Uh, it's a very valuable benefit. It's a monthly compensation that's uh, paid out uh, based on the severity of the impairment of your disability. So depending, if you, the worse off you are, the more money you get per month. Uh, it's tax-free income uh, to the veterans, and so um, for anyone who has a disability, it's a very valuable benefit uh, and so much sought after. Um, so that, that has always been sort of the focus of this clinic. We've dabbled in other things. We, we have, did for a time do a little bit of discharge upgrade work. That is where veterans have um, uh, other than honorable discharges that bar them from certain benefits um, and they want to get those upgraded or changed. Uh, that's a different process, different agency. It's a Department of Defense issue rather than a VA issue. Uh, although there was a VA component that, uh, that bears on, on your discharge character. Uh, but. Um, we had a fellow who was sort of specialized in that for a time. She finished her time here, and we've sort of gone back to our bread and butter, of just disability benefits.
1: And disability compensation, it's interesting because I think it's very different than a lot of people would assume that it is, not knowing anything about it. Um, certainly before I started the clinic, I barely knew something about, oh, veterans can get paid, right? There's something that happens. I didn't know anything more than that. As Dave was saying, monthly tax-free checks, those are great. It's not just for combat veterans. You might have an easier time proving that combat injuries are related to military service in certain circumstances, but when you are in active duty, the military's position is that they own you as a person 24-7. So the idea is if they have control over what you do 24-7, they have the obligation to pay you for whatever happened while you are in active duty military service 24 7. so you have to prove three things you have to prove uh, to win that you have a current disability or medical condition of some sort because this is about compensating you for something that is going wrong Right now, not necessarily something that may have happened to you in the past. You have to prove that there is an in-service event or stressor of some sort. That is to say, oh, I have these flat feet and it was because I really injured them during this parachute jump or I have this disease and it first manifested while I was on active duty military service. And then you have to prove a nexus between the in-service event and the current disability. In other words, my current disability or medical condition is somehow related to my military service.
0: A slightly different venue, but a not altogether different process of proving various claims in what I would call regular law. <laughs> Towards you know, the kind of thing that you learn about, you, th- you think of lawyers doing more often, but as we... As I learned, as you guys are well aware of,
1: the, the VA system is not normal law. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, uh, we, we use the Twilight Zone metaphor quite a bit just because what else could you say? Um, certain things in this practice look very similar to other parts of law in the sense that if a lot of your practice in another area happens mostly on paper, well, that looks very similar to our, our practice as well we have lay adjudicators which is an interesting thing about this system most of the people making decisions at least at the first level before the appeals come through they are people who may only have high school educations they don't have any formal legal or medical training for the most part so if you do uh, anything that has lay adjudicators i suppose that might be a similarity but obviously we'd acknowledge that This system is very different from most things and even different than other areas of administrative law and how those things work.
2: I mean, it is fundamentally about gathering the evidence to prove compliance with legal requirements uh, like any any field of law. Um, The work we do actually in the clinic, uh, we actually do handle claims up to the agency and on appeal to the court. So when you appeal outside the agency to an appellate court, you, of course, are looking at Demonstrating error by the agency, so it's a instead of building the case, you're now criticizing the decision that the VA made. So it's a different, it's a collateral attack kind of practice, so like an, an appellate practice. But the as Kale does the, the agency, the way it develops the record uh, in these cases is very unlike um, the other uh, areas of law. In that there's the big thing that's missing in the veteran system is there's no cross examination of witnesses no, no ability to challenge evidence uh, that might be deemed uh, adverse to your <laughs> claim, uh, except by submitting other evidence that you hope sort of overwhelms it. And uh, A lot of the burden of adjudication then falls on the agency, these lay adjudicators uh, at the initial level. There are lawyers who look at it later in the system at the Board uh, of Veterans' Appeals. Uh, but uh, a lot of the burden falls on them to kind of sort through the evidence. <clears throat> decide what's probative and what's not, what's convincing and what's not, and they the review that Congress set up eventually, there didn't it used to be judicial review uh, of agency decisions. It didn't happen until legislation passed in 1988. So for over 100 years, we had a system that was basically self-contained within the VA. There was no recourse outside the agency. If they denied you benefits, you were denied, and that's all you had to say about it. Um, when they created judicial review, they uh, sort of created a system that looks a lot like review of jury-determined uh, cases in the regular litigation system, um, but the problem is the record isn't developed the way it is before a jury. You don't have the, the, the challenging of evidence and the drawing out of all the evidence that's relevant. It's purely what the veteran submits, what the VA gathers in the way of, that it thinks is appropriate. Um, and so it's a kind of a mismatch, which is one of the, re- one of the many reasons that the system is so challenging.
1: And, and as a not-so-fun fact, that I'm sure will come up multiple times throughout the entirety of this podcast, this system takes forever. And so I have a case right now, for instance, at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, when Dave says the court, that's what we mean in our system. Uh, it's been going since 2001. And while that might be a little bit longer than most of our cases in the clinic, there are certainly a lot of cases that have been going on for at least a decade. Uh, Scott, happy to report that some of the cases that you've been working on, we've seen uh, ultimate success, getting someone 100% disability benefits for the entire pay period, but some of those cases had been ongoing for five to ten years and unfortunately just because of the length of time it takes in the system that's not so unusual right that's
0: certainly something that stands out (laughs) from my time there is uh, I think one of the frustrating things from the students perspective sometimes is even if you are with the clinic for a whole semester or a whole summer or maybe even more I know some people enroll multiple times uh, it is you don't see tangible progress very often and that's frustrating but you kind of have to remind yourself that if we if we weren't here, incrementally moving the ball forward, then nobody would be. So that's, right,
1: that's a great point. I mean, with apologies to the uh, good people at West Point, you're kind of part of the long gray line, right? Uh, a lot of students worked before you doing what needed to be done, and then there are going to be students after you probably who continue the work. I have some cases. One of which I just finished with the ultimate goal being reached, but I have some cases I worked on as a law student, and that's really unfortunate, but it is the reality that we're living under as of right now. Mm -hmm.
3: So with these peculiarities in the subject matter and the way that um, things fold out, how do you structure your teaching um, to the law students to account for these really um, novel differences in this specific type of
2: law? It's a uh, we we kind of take a multi-pronged approach. I mean, we're trying to get the students up to speed as quickly as possible so they can actually do productive work on the cases. Um, but as you say, it is a is a rather arcane, peculiar system. It's strange, coming from sort of regular legal systems to deal with this rather odd system. So um, we do it in several different ways. We we start each semester and our summer session with a boot camp, as we call it, uh, where we sort of dump. An overview of the whole process uh, on students at, at one time and kind of get them uh, inoculated, if you will. Part learning, part hazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> right. And then we do uh, booster shots uh, uh, throughout throughout, <laughs> the, throughout the semester uh, in the form of lecture and class, readings um, that we assign, um, and then um, we do uh, weekly meetings, uh, both in the semester and the summer, uh, with the students who work directly with us. Uh, to talk about the cases, and, and so it's a combined process of all that stuff that goes into uh, getting getting the student up to speed. Uh, I will confess that, that many students tell us that by the time they get to the end of the semester, they're starting to feel like they know what th- that they're doing and can now move the ball forward. And that's one reason that we try to, where we can, provide a second semester of benefits clinic so that they can Because by then they feel like they're starting to to make some progress. Uh, Scott says, it's a very slow-moving system. You scramble around, you do something, then you wait for the VA to make its next decision, which can be 8, 10, 12, 18 months. I mean, it just takes, or, or five, seven years in the case of the board.
0: Now, and in it, fairness, that's also what I say with all my regular classes <laughs> by the end of the semester. Oh, I'm starting to maybe get the fundamentals. If I'm well, that's a good point. And <laughs> yeah. that's, a,
1: that's a great quip. And Davis, in your response to your question, I would also say that because of our much smaller c- class sizes, we have weekly meetings that are mandatory with all of our students. Or at least once a week, we're going to sit down half an hour to an hour and talk about your cases and what you need to do for the coming week in order to move them forward. Uh, of course, because uh, we as professors work so closely with the students, our time with the students is often not limited to that one meeting. Students are in our offices a lot, which is something that we prefer, but that might be something that works a little bit differently uh, than it does outside of those locked glass doors.
0: <laughs> right. Can you guys talk a little bit about the process of how you obtain the clients or how the clients obtain your representation, so to speak, and then how, the process, how you uh, do that outreach, uh, how you make the connections, and then how you start to initiate, uh, where you pick up these claims and then where you take the process from there?
2: I'll Caleb talk mostly about this, but um, it, it, in a way, the clinic kind of sells itself because we've been around long enough. Uh, we're very well known. Um, and so, frankly, I've found it pretty easy to, um, you know, that we don't have to work too hard to have people come to us. We get referrals um, from the VA, oddly enough. Uh, the VA medical centers at Hampton and McGuire uh, in Richmond uh, will send people our way if they know there's something. Uh, we have various other agencies that we're sort of touch with we work with the Virginia Department of Veterans Services um, and refer clients back and forth. Sometimes they can take one that we can't do with, we'll take one that they can't. Um, uh, so that's one way that we get clients and a lot of it's word of mouth, people have heard of us. Um, and then I'll let Caleb talk about our, our Military Monday program, which he runs.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll definitely eventually get to Military Mondays. Uh, when we're taking on cases we have two main goals, and I jokingly refer to it as the Polar Clinic Constitution. It's not so much of a joke, because I did print it out in very old uh, uh, font type typeface, and uh, I made Dave swear on it when he took over co-directorship of the clinic. So it's serious business. But the idea is we have two main <laughs> goals. It's a very short constitution. It's a very yeah, short but. constitution. It's teach law students and get vets paid. So those are both goals that we have to think about how we're meeting whenever we take on a new case no matter what it actually is. There are cases where we think that uh, it would absolutely be a winning case. It's a very, very good case, but it's also something that doesn't need a lawyer's fine touch. It's something where the evidence is so obvious and so apparent that if they go to the Virginia Department of Veterans Services, file a claim with one of their agents, you know, they might have 45 minutes into it in the sense that they have to go find a record or two they couldn't quite find out of their official military personnel file or something like that but it's an easy process and there's no there's no real value add there's no sort of uh utility society that's necessarily being taken on with one of these cases and so um we try to take difficult cases to where we might be the difference between winning and losing and those difficult cases are often what make the best training cases for students uh that's how we've ended up with a lot of ptsd cases uh in particular uh military sexual trauma cases just because we have particular specialized knowledge and training and resources that other organizations may not have We work closely with the local uh, neuropsych practice uh, for TBI issues, uh, traumatic brain injury because those are something that we've gotten fairly good at over the years. We have a relationship with Virginia Commonwealth University and their psych department where we can send a few veterans every year for uh, low-cost psych evaluations that might help us establish that a current medical condition uh, psychologically in this particular case is connected to military service. So those are the cases we take on full-time, or those are the cases that we say, hey, look, it might be better if you just file this claim on your own. Come back and see us if it doesn't work, but we think that you're probably good to go. The middle ground, as Dave was mentioning, is probably Military Mondays. Military Mondays is a program that we have at our local Starbucks over there on the Law Circle. It's by appointment only, but we get applications from veterans who want help from us and we sit down with the people that we've selected for military monies for an hour at a local starbucks we have an agent from the virginia department veteran services who's sometimes able to access electronic records or file some claims on the spot but we just talk to them and we say look here's our assessment of what you have and more importantly what you need to go get often it is telling them exactly Uh, what gaps in their case exist right now and how they can plug them in order to give a really effective package to these lay adjudicators and make it to where it'd be really difficult to deny them again. Often this means going and getting a nexus opinion from a private physician uh, or possibly someone who works at a VA medical center, a doctor's opinion that explains that in their professional medical opinion with their expertise, with their background, with the evidence they've seen, they believe that a current condition is as likely as not related to military service. One of the lowest standards in the legal profession, Uh, in criminal cases, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil cases, it's preponderance of the evidence. Uh, In in veterans' benefits, it's supposed to be a veterans-friendly system, at least on paper, and it is as likely as not.
2: That is, that is to say, if it's a 50-50 balance of the evidence, the tie is supposed to go to the veteran. The benefit of the doubt goes to the veteran. Military Monday, by the way, was started by Vice Dean Roberts. It was her idea. She sold it to Starbucks, and there are now Military Monday-type things all across the country in more than, I think, 40-some-odd locations around. It was a program started here that has caught on. Starbucks is very supportive of it.
1: And just out of uh, our own folks, we've seen almost 400 veterans through Military Mondays since the program started, I believe, summer of 2015.
0: That's terrific. It's also worth noting that we have uh, somewhat of a built-in clientele based on geography because there's so, so (coughs) so much military activity in the Hampton Roads area in eastern Virginia. And so, by extension, there's inevitably a lot of veterans who end up in the area, and there's also you know, just a, I think the average person would probably be shocked at the amount of people who had some adverse activity that occurred to them while they were in the military, Yeah. even as you mentioned before, it's not necessarily, when you think of disabled veterans, you think of combat veterans, but the more work you do, I think, with the clinic, it's very illuminating that uh, all kind of things happen to people when they're in service, and they are certainly deserving um, of compensation for it, and that's why you guys are here.
2: <laughs> yeah, com- combat injuries actually make up a very tiny percentage of, of what we actually see in the clinic. It's, uh, it's a lot of um, you know injuries, onset of diseases, um, you know, basketball injuries, really mm-hmm. common. It counts, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and as long as it happened while you're on active you duty service, uh, it's it's fine. Uh, you qualify. And as Caleb said, the the military takes responsibility for you the whole time you're there on the clock. For you.
1: That being said, I would say that at least a plurality, if not a majority of our cases, have some sort of PTSD element to them.
0: So the, the one of the fundamentally challenging things is the nature of the adjudications. I think we've been dancing around, but I don't think you've said it out loud yet, the non-adversarial <laughs> nature of the system, which, again, sounds friendly to the veterans, but it turns out to be quite challenging because it's in the proceedings that I've been familiarized with, it seems like the adversary is the judicial body itself, which yeah, is and more Dave of an a, inherent
1: and Dave has a great theory on why this is. So definitely yeah, get to that as we all air quote non-adversarial just, with our fingers, which yeah, so they can't see, it's, it's, it's listening. So
2: speculative, but um, yeah, the system was set up, um, this stems, this is history. It goes back to the Civil War era, and there was a lot of corruption of agents and attorneys, I'm air quoting now, um, uh, agents uh, helping helping veterans uh, to get their benefits and it, it turned out to be a big you know, scam and there were lots of corruption and Congress put its foot down and said, okay, we're going to ban lawyers from getting paid for handling these claims. You couldn't get paid more than $5, they raised it to $10 which was not a tiny fee in those days, but it stayed that way for over 100 years. And so the practical result of that was uh, lawyers were basically excluded from this system. So you've had a system that was set up to be administered by non-lawyers. The claimants don't have lawyers. Uh, And so the idea is the system was supposed to sort of help them. And so you've got this strange system where... Uh, the agency is responsible for notifying you of what needs to be submitted, sort of. Sort of. Uh, uh, helping you get some of it, requesting records, providing medical examinations and opinions at times. Sort of. Um, sort of. All of these things they do, sort of. Uh, and then, once they've helped you sort of develop the case, they change hats and say, okay, now we're going to be the judges and decide the case. And my theory is, uh, that Caleb alludes to, is that I think what the reason this feels so adverse, and Scott, you've had the the experience of going through it, and I think you've come to the same feeling that we all have when we deal with this system, um, is because there there is no one in the process who is opposing the claim, unlike a regular civil case where the judge hears the evidence from one side, hears the evidence from the other side, it's cross-examined, everything comes out. The VA system, it's always from one side. It's always a claimant submitting it, and no one is there saying, you should deny this claim, which I think causes the decision makers to say, maybe somebody needs to be looking out for the government's interest. Uh, You'll hear this sometimes from government lawyers, the government's interest. The government really has no interest in denying a claim. The government's interest is in following the system they've set up, which means giving benefits to people who are entitled to them. But I think this sort of mindset sets in because of the way that the claims always come from the same side. And so you get people sort of developing a resistance to claims, a skepticism about claims that carries over sometimes. uh, So we all, everybody who deals with this system long enough gets the feeling that the, the DAC is not veteran friendly, it's sort of stacked against the veteran.
1: Yeah, and I have a comment, I guess, on one of the particular forms of the sort of <laughs> that we that we were alluding to. Um, the VA does have the duty to assist veterans in certain circumstances if you get beyond a th- certain threshold they might have to provide something called a compensation and pension exam. That is a free medical exam where a doctor or some other sort of medical professional is going to see whether or not he or she believes that this current problem that the veteran is experiencing is somehow related to military service. They do a lot of those examinations a year. Last number I think we heard it was somewhere around $2.5 million uh, per year, the idea is they they are doing a compensation and pension exam every time you can snap your fingers with a breath. It is a lot of examinations, and I think that certainly when all of those examinations are happening, you have certain doctors at these VA medical centers who are just doing compensation and pension exams all day, and so they know that when someone is put in front of them, it's because there's money being sought in in some sort of sense. And so I think that makes people sort of naturally suspicious, or if there's third-party contractors who are getting these compensation and pension exams contracted up to them, they know there's money at stake in in some sort of sense. And so there is an incentive, I think for them to act as the gatekeeper, you know, certainly we're not going to get into this is, this is not going to be coast to coast with art bell here. So we're not going to do conspiracy theory stuff. Um, But certainly, you can think about the incentives that are being provided for people to say, yes, this is related to military service, or no, this is not related to military service. And I think that in certain circumstances, especially with third-party contractors, perhaps the incentive to say, no, this is not related to military service, wins out just a little bit more. The other sort of gatekeeping element, I'll identify that that Dave uh, alluded to a little bit, There's no one protecting the public purse. A lot of these lay adjudicators, people making decisions Mm. in the system, were also veterans themselves. An interesting dynamic that we've seen, or at least we suspect that we've seen in this system, is that veterans are harder on other veterans, partially because veterans, when they see another veteran's claims, might be imparting their own experiences onto them and trying to figure out whether or not something actually happened or whether or not something can be related to military service. And so I think that's kind of something that's hidden beneath the surface that we fight at at times. And it's a system where a lot of people are trying to do the right thing. It's unusual because unlike tax policy or immigration or any sort of other hot button issue you can think of, there's only one side. People want to do as best as they possibly can for these vets, and yet we've still set up a system that has ended up being something of a a quagmire, uh, non-adversarial or not. All of which
0: I think underscores the need for (coughs) these veterans to have legal support, and to the extent that students can do it, it's uh, even more imperative.
2: Well, and, and that raises that's a racist good point of the niche that the clinic can fill, uh, because I mentioned this anti-corruption response of Congress um, that basically barred lawyers. Uh, lawyers are still prohibited by law from representing a veteran and getting paid for it up through the initial decision by the agency. They're still not permitted to do that, um, which means that at the very point where it would really be efficient in the system to gather all the evidence, that you need to prove the claim and submit it at that initial stage, uh, they're not getting the advice of lawyers, which would be really helpful in doing that. So um, one thing that we can do at the clinic if we do get into the case early enough is we can supply that legal advice because we don't get paid for the work we do. We um, we don't take fees from clients. Uh, we do get paid, by the way, if we win a case at the court. We can get paid by the government under the Equal Access to Justice Act. Um, but. Um,
1: and that's money the veteran would never see anyway. it's, yeah, right. it's meant to get lawyers to take these cases. Not out of his, yeah.
2: not coming out of the veteran's pocket. Um, but that, um, so that is a, a unique, really role for clinics. They're almost unique uh, in that we can do something that um, that other lawyers really can't afford to do. Guess uh, they can't work for free. Um, the other thing that was mentioned uh, that should be pointed out is that, and Caleb mentioned, you know, lots of people at the VA trying to do the right thing. One of the Other reasons for the challenges that veterans face at this agency is just simply that the agency is overwhelmed for the mission it is trying to perform. That's true on the healthcare side. It's true on the benefits side. As much as many billions of dollars, and there are a lot of them that Congress throws at this agency. This is the second largest cabinet-level agency after the Department of Defense. Uh, There's still not enough money to uh, hire all the people. They don't have the resources. They don't have enough judges. They don't have enough adjudicators. Unit. Something like I just saw something the other day. There are like 40-some-odd thousand empty positions at the VA. That's in a workforce of around 400,000 people, so that's a tenth of the workforce that's not there.
1: Yeah, and let me jump in with a stat before we allow them to uh, gracefully move on from our rambling, I suppose. At the Board of Veterans' Appeals, which is the first level that people see attorneys making any sort of decisions on their cases— which could be seven years after they've made the original claim. Uh, The fiscal year 2018 report said that the Board of Veterans' Appeals decided 85,288 cases. They identified in the same fiscal year, as far as cases coming in, 167,509 cases. So they are creating a case deficit of, and I know that we're all lawyers here, and so we don't do <laughs> math, but that's a huge gap. And 85,000 was a huge, huge jump over the cases they decided the previous year, which was somewhere closer to 55,000. A lot of resources are being thrown at things in the system, and it helps. They just recently changed a lot of the appellate procedures uh, that went into effect actually uh, February 19th. So they're trying to do things that that act as a magic band-aid for everything, but unfortunately the numbers just say with the way that we do things now, we are running a huge case deficit, which is create a huge case debt. Uh, the water board, rising. The, you know, how high is the water? Mama, five feet high and rising. That's right. But they estimated the board with this last fiscal year report that even if no new cases came in and they just took care of their current case docket, it would take them forty two months to decide everything. And to me that's probably a little bit optimistic. I'm sure it is. Well
3: I did have a question asking why is the why are the works so gummed up, but I think you just answered that <laughs> pretty well,
0: well. Yeah, I mean it's largely resources as you guys have both alluded to and I certainly appreciate data driven arguments on podcasts (laughs) Uh, so that is not rambling in the in the slightest sense but how do you guys think besides the the resourcing um a bolster in that in that area how could i know you have lots of ideas about this but (laughs) how otherwise could the system be restructured to streamline claims fundamentally just serve veterans more effectively
2: well it it, it's i mean the it seemed like a good idea at the time, back around, <laughs> War. Stories, Man, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> around World War I. That's all good stuff. Man, that's so true. Around World War One, they switched from a straight cash payment system, what they call a pension, to a disability-related thing. So they were, gonna, we're not going to just compensate people for being in the military. We're going to, to address disabilities and, and tie it to a disability. The, but, the, but to do that, you have to have this enormous adjudicatory apparatus, you have to have all the doctors to assess the medical conditions to see if they really are related to service and how severe they are. That's an enormous uh, edifice that had to be constructed. Um, and it's just so huge. And of course, like any sort of due process kind of system, uh, it takes a while to work through adjudications and appeals and uh, gather evidence and all that. It's just, you know, any court system is a kind of a slow moving system. VA is just comparatively slow, even to the slowest system. Um, so it's, it's not just resources, it's that the system is kind of complicated. Um, I think, honestly, the, way, the only way they'd ever be able to truly reform the system would be to probably abandon the disability connection, go back to a straight cash payment system, um, fire all the doctors and, and all that connected with the benefits side of the system and just hire a bunch of accountants to keep track of who was in for how many years and how much they get paid. <laughs> I honestly don't know that they could, will ever be able to address the system in any way resembling its current
1: form. Yeah, and ultimately it's just a matter of what are your goals. There are certain goals that the current system really meets well and meets uh, well and better than any other way of doing it would. This system for a veteran is the most fair that it can be veterans get unlimited tries at making a claim as long as veterans can continue to present new and material evidence which is a pretty low bar so in most cases a judge decides it and then with some exceptions you're done with it it's decided one time veterans get unlimited bites at the apple in the system and although they can't necessarily go back to the date that they originally made the claim and get that Uh, effective date as when their payments would start and get a huge lump sum, they do get unlimited tries. Additionally, the VA does have to provide a lot of uh, benefits to the veteran, like this duty to assist or uh, this duty to notify them in certain cases. they got to go track down evidence. they got to provide them with a free exam that decides whether or not this thing is related to military service. And, you know, if you have some sort of tort claim, you're not going to get some sort of government-provided doctor who opines on exactly how badly injured you got in a car accident. So that's that's certainly something where it's more fair than it is in other systems to veterans, and they're trying to make a determination on exactly how disabled you are. In Social Security, you're either totally disabled, 100% disabled, or you aren't. But in this system, we've decided there are some people who are exactly 40% disabled. So 60% not disabled and 40% disabled, and we're going to pay them accordingly using a really complicated system of math that we won't get into for this podcast, even though we can probably fill up the rest of the time that we have just talking about that alone and how ridiculous it is. But there are trade-offs. I mean, the great economist Thomas Sowell said that there are no solutions only trade-offs and so it would be much more efficient and perhaps even more just more effective if we got rid of disability benefits altogether and went to some sort of pension based on time served based on the pay grant that you've left during service some sort of almost uh, sh- pseudo military retirement system kind of a miniature version of the retirement system that existed before they changed everything, I guess December of of last year. But certainly I I agree with Dave. I think that if you really wanted to save this system, you would have to grandfather everyone in who got their commission or uh, enlisted after, uh, uh, sorry, before a certain date, then everyone after is under this new system. So you know completely what you're getting into when you sign up. But ultimately, even though this system does a lot of things well, I it's gonna collapse under its own weight eventually and we can shift around deck chairs on the Lusitania or the Hindenburg or the Titanic all we want and I really really don't want to leave any veteran behind and I think that if we grandfather people in it's a little bit more of a fair way of doing it but but yeah I agree with Dave entirely on that one. I Not
2: that it could be done politically. Right. Yes.
1: Another huge problem
0: here.
1: Yeah. I mean, even though there's only one side to all these veterans benefits issues, just because of the way that the political system is set up, uh, the people that Congress has decided to listen to, veteran service organizations, uh, they can't they can't agree to anything or lobby for anything that would leave even a small fraction of their membership behind, which I think is completely legitimate, right? If you have something in the law that's going to change and benefit 98% of your membership, but it's really going to damage 2% of your membership, I think it's appropriate for organizations like the disabled American veterans or the American Legion to say, no, we don't want that. And ultimately, all of the... Political pressures that stop Congress from actually doing anything that would fix this problem long term are, I guess, regrettable but understandable. Certainly, I don't think any
3: arguments saying getting lawyers more involved and paying them more is going to go over well. <laughs> yeah. Likely true. Yeah. It's all dollars and cents. We,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know,
2: we unquestionably have slowed down the system, we lawyers. Uh, when judicial review came in, uh, lawyers became more involved in the system, and, you know, we have the uncomfortable habit of objecting and complaining about things not being done correctly. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how dare we, and, uh, but it definitely <laughs> slows things down, uh, the, the the VSOs, the service organizations, resisted the involvement of lawyers, they didn't want it. And one of their arguments was, it'll slow things down, and they were absolutely right. Correct. Task. Um, We think it has slowed it down for the better in that we're getting better decisions as a result of that review, but no question uh, it did slow it down.
0: How do you see the both the this veterans benefits claim system as well as the I guess the work of the clinic in a related sense changing or developing in the coming years? Because I know a lot of the clients that you take on currently I don't know what the percentage is, but there's a lot of claims from the Vietnam era, and then as you know, these people age out, you know, we are getting to a point where at some point, I don't know when these people come into our vision, but you know, veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, considering how many uh, presumably uh, not only combat injuries, but also people who were just deployed you know, around the war effort generally, um, and, a, and a big increase there. How do you see the, the nature of the work kind of changing in response to these people,
1: becoming a bigger part of the system? I'll, I'll jump in there because I feel like I have a couple of things where it might be very different. The evidence that we collect on cases for current uh, conflict vets might end up looking a little bit more different, you know, uh, obviously, with technology, instead of going, well, did you send any letters, uh, you know, back home from Vietnam talking about this incident? Now we might be going, did you complain about this on Twitter? Mm-hmm. And can we use that as evidence that something may have first manifested while in active duty? So I think the evidence is going to change a little bit, uh, you know, as time goes on and how it's going to look. Obviously, it's very different dealing with current conflict vets culturally than it is with Vietnam vets just because they're much younger and uh, generationally. As we know, being millennials, there are just huge differences between our cohort of folks and, and, and people who have come before us. And so I think the evidence is going to look a little bit different. I think that probably we will see still a lot of cases where there's been quite a bit of time passed between military service and the time they're actually trying to take care of these claims. That is something that has often sabotaged some of our clients, who maybe didn't start uh, collecting that evidence and making the arguments until a long way down the road, and as time passes it's harder to prove that current conditions are related to military service. So I think that that's going to continue to change as time goes on, but obviously, Vietnam War veterans are sadly leaving us, current conflict vets are still being minted and so the numbers will eventually cross actually very soon if you look at the statistics. where There will be more current conflict vets than Vietnam vets. And then as far as our clinic, we've taken on more Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims cases recently just to get students uh, some more appellate writing experience. It's probably the stuff that we do that looks the most like something else in private practice. Um, but also because we feel like those are obviously cases that need a lawyer's touch. You can't go in and, and argue before an appellate court as a non-lawyer and expect to get anywhere.
0: Yeah, pro se uh, litigants don't fare particularly well. No. As, far as I'm aware in, in no. judicial proceedings. And the judges pray that they'll get lawyers.
2: Yeah. <laughs> courts hate, pro se. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, I think each each conflict has created sort of different challenges and problems in the Vietnam era, you had the challenge of PTSD, which wasn't recognized for a good period of time, and eventually it was. You had the Agent Orange uh, exposure, and they're still wrestling with that. Um, We just had the sort of uh, landslide, a sort of cataclysmic uh, decision from the Federal Circuit that said uh, to Congress, oh, back in 91, it turns out you actually extended Agent Orange presumption of exposure to all these Navy veterans who were sitting around offshore in the ships. Uh, Congress had just been wrestling with that and co- trying to trying to extend it and failing, and then the Fed Circuit came along and said, well, hey, guess what? You did it back in 91, so I suspect that case is going to the Supreme Court on petition. Uh, at least they'll try. <laughs> but at any rate, they're still wrestling with that issue of how to deal with mass exposures to toxins and the effects that they have, medical effects, which takes a while to develop that evidence. We've got now, coming out of Gulf War, uh, burn pits, sort of the Equivalent now of Agent Orange kind of stuff, and I think we're going to continue to see that kind of stuff. Um, another big challenge of the current conflicts is the the repetitive deployments. It takes a huge toll on soldiers in a way that um, you know was not true in the past. Um, so I, the the issues change, the challenges change.
1: The lawyers remain yeah <laughs> <The> lawyers remain. <laughs> a, a lot more irregular warfare so that leads to its own set of psychological issues uh then certainly battlefield medicine has come a long way protections come a long way so things that would have just uh, killed a veteran before are are now uh, instead naming them and obviously would prefer for them to live Obviously, but that uh, that does create a whole new set of challenges for taking care of them as time goes on. Dave and I wrote a, a book chapter on this very issue called "The Modern Veteran," I guess, uh, service members and veterans' rights, if I remember correctly, the title. But this is something I guess that we've written on before, so we're interested in it.
0: Yeah. Um, in the remaining time, I know you guys have to get out of here in a couple minutes. But um, what are your just stepping aside from the clinic for a second uh, this is
1: Okay, so to be fair, this is more of a question for Caleb because I know he has some thoughts. What are your rapid-fire <laughs> law school tips? <laughs> well, as as you know, Scott, if you come work for the clinic, I gave an entire talk at the very end of the summer term. I can't believe we're giving this away for free now. You don't even have to do the whole <laughs> Well, I You're going so, get some of the tips. Yeah, so that's what I'm just going to say, some of the tips uh, that I've creatively called uh, gaming the law school system for pleasure and profit. You realize or something, this is like an that. official law school I do really. Yeah, this right. is an official, an official talk. So what I'm going to do, uh, the traditional psychopath uh, route, and I'm <laughs> going can't to... be unappointed, you know. Yeah. I, guess, I, suppose I, can, yeah. I suppose I can be unappointed, but the idea is, you know, I'm going to be as transparent as possible while actually being opaque, right? The most important thing to do in law school is to not panic. That's always what I've given as my first tip for people taking the bar exam when it is especially important uh you know having passed two bar exams myself at this point i know it's a whole huge stressful experience and i went through law school recently i know it's a whole huge stressful experience so if you can not panic and make sure that you hold on yourself and who you are keep your outside interest you know now i do a lot of running or weightlifting back in the day uh, in law school for instance i had a bluegrass band that we you know occasionally played psf auction for and all that sort of stuff and it was great so keep your outside interests keep focused and keep disciplined um and then uh, the 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 other tip i would just have in general not knowing your particular class and not getting into the scheduling stuff that maybe I would talk more about in a summer (laughs) session, and Scott uh, is chuckling a little bit because he understands exactly what I'm talking about, but I would say that uh, there is no law school class out there where uh, just doing the work and wanting to do the work won't put you ahead of quite a few of your classmates who are just trying to survive so that passion that effort that grit if you want to use the basketball terminology who will dive on the floor after a loose ball that'll get you uh, a lot of the way there and i mean in clinical work there's a lot of built-in opportunities to get really close to your professors and ask them questions and figure out what they're trying to do. And doctrinal classes, those opportunities are not usually mandatory. And so if you're doing those things, you're putting yourself ahead of the game. Uh, Ultimately, they're the ones who are going to be testing you in either a finals perspective or on a paper. And so knowing exactly what they want out of you is really important. But we have fantastic faculty here, I mean, some of my favorite faculty members have retired or otherwise moved on uh professor stacy ray simcox helena uh mock crystal shin especially you know those are my clinical professors who did really well but i had ally for conwall she was fabulous uh, Professor and Larson. Professor yeah. Larson, to you all. Uh, uh, yeah. ap- apologies for that. The class of 2022, who might be listening to this, definitely <laughs> doesn't know <laughs> who Allie is. Uh, so. you know, and yeah. it's it's not to slight any particular person who I don't mention, but I had Paul Marcus in law schools of all well for criminal procedure. That's one of those classes that you just remember forever. Uh, there were several other law professors who I just didn't get an opportunity to take. Uh, who would have been fantastic as well. But uh, I think that faculty here really, really enjoy teaching. And so use that to your advantage and have them teach you, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I have other thoughts that you are free to email me or otherwise contact (laughs) me about uh, because I give these thoughts pretty freely. But I'll, I'll leave that to people who opt in.
3: I, mean, I have to send an email off night
0: to
1: the rest of the tips. Roger. Just access journalism.
0: If I can get one word
2: in here. <laughs> no. Work on your writing. Yes. Every law student should work on writing. It's just, there's no single thing you can work on that will set you up better for your life in the profession than getting good at writing in the way lawyers need to write. And, you know, it's just, it may not be the most fun thing you do, but it's, It is an extremely important one. Over my career, I've seen the value of it, and I tell all students, the better they are as writers when they come out of here, the better they'll do in the
1: profession. Be Ernest Hemingway, not James Joyce, (laughs) and then take uh, Dave Belsner and learn from him because he is, I mean, he's made my own writing better quite a bit, just uh, not even taking his classes directly, but teaching with him. It's been really important. So yeah, definitely care about writing. That's a that's another obvious thing, I guess, that uh, bears repeating. Mm-hmm. All right.
0: Well, I think with that we can we can wrap up. Thanks again for sitting down with us and offering some wisdom, I knew we would get a lot out of you guys. so, <laughs> Thank you, you, so much. you definitely didn't disappoint. And th- up. Yeah, and
1: thanks for everyone else for surviving our podcast. <laughs> Congratulations.
0: You made it, everybody, unless you turned it off before now.
1: <laughs> In which case, not for you. <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, so, again, thanks for tuning into Office Hours, and thanks to uh, Professors Belsner and Stone. And have a great day whenever you're listening to this. See you next time.